Thank you, April. I'm delighted to be here. I like to use these opportunities whenever possible to sort of share my understanding of stem cell biology. So let me set a few ground rules right away. I have about 20 or 25 minutes worth of talk. That means this is a very interactive presentation. I want to be interrupted. If you don't, we're going to be leaving awfully early. So please stop me at any point, ask questions and clarification. The second thing about the biology of, of embryonic stem cells in particular is that they're very charged, emotionally charged. Now, I don't have the right answers, but I, what I think is important is that we all make, those, make our personal decisions based on a set of facts. So what I'll try to do today is share with you some of the aspects of the stem cell toolbox, what we have available to us, what we think we can do with them, what we can't do with them, and then sort of help you make your decision, your personal decision about where you're going to stand on this because it is an emotionally charged situation. Now, wherever I give you my personal opinion, I'll try and, and point that out because, again, I don't have the right answer. I know what I believe from my spiritual upbringing and, and status, but I just, when I share that with you, I'll make, you, make it clear to you that those are my personal opinions. So, first off, I bring you greetings from the College of Medicine. Uh, this is my email address. I welcome questions via email. And so if you have something you'd like to talk about offline, then please just send me an email and I'll be delighted to, to talk with you. As I pointed out at the outset, as April said, I'm at the College of Medicine, which is in Hershey. Uh, this is the medical center complex. I'm at, my office is actually this room right here. <laughs> and so if you're ever in Hershey and you'd like a tour of the facility, please give me a call. I point that out because in a month and a half, my office is right here in a new building that's going to be completed on April 27th, the Hershey Center for Applied Research. We're beginning a new biotechnology park in Hershey, and the depart I'm going to move my Department of Pharmacology into the third floor of that building, and the idea there is that we want to set up a situation where our discoveries can be translated into cures for disease, and hence the name Applied Research. Well, as I pointed out, in my 20-plus years of research, I've never been involved in anything more emotionally charged than stem cell biology. It generates heartfelt opinions, a lot of angst between individuals, and what I advocate for is the opportunity to have an open discussion about this so that we can, uh, we can respect each other's ideas, we can agree to disagree, but let's have, let's have a discussion about it and, and, and get the facts on the table. I'll start by pointing out that we right now have five tools in the toolbox. And what I'd like to do in the next 15 or 20 minutes is give you aspects, scientific aspects of those five tools. <clears throat> the first are adult stem cells, which have been getting an awful lot of press lately. I'll share some of our knowledge of those with you. The latest development is in the area of stem cells that come from amniotic fluid or placenta or placental cord blood, in vitro fertilization derived stem cells, stem cells derived from somatic cell nuclear transfer cloning, and so we're going to have a little bit of discussion today about what cloning means, and then finally our 
relatively small contribution to the field, we invented a new way of making embryonic stem cells several years ago through parthenogenesis. And I'll spend two or three slides talking about how that works at the very end. But before we do that, we need to understand a very key point, and that point is the word clone, is embodied in the word clone. That term is not inherently bad, although I find that it generates the most discussion of anything we talk about, the idea of cloning cells or cloning individuals. The word clone just refers to a precise genetic copy. It can be of a molecule, as we frequently clone our genes to understand them in the laboratory. I'm interested in genes involved in brain development. It can be a molecule, it can be a plant, it can be an animal or a human being. And so the word clone isn't inherently bad, and if we had more time, we'd talk about some of those things, but I'll just point out that most of you probably know an identical twin, either personally or know of them. They are clones. That's a situation where cells have uh, the two-cell or the four-cell embryo decided to split, and then each half became a, an individual. And so the point is that cloning's been around for a long time, and there's nothing inherently bad with twins, so we shouldn't be afraid of the word clone. It's how we use it and how we use the technology. So in terms of our discussion today, we have to frame this central issue involving cloning, and there are two things possible. There's the concept of therapeutic cloning, where we might use that technology, and I'll show you some videos of how that works, we might use that technology to clone your cells to treat your disease. So the science community has, ter has termed that therapeutic cloning. On the other hand is reproductive cloning, and that uses the exact same technology but with a different outcome, and that outcome is to clone a human being or, as I'll show you in a moment, to clone animals for research purposes. But the point is these are two different things. They involve different ethical considerations, and they should be considered as separate issues. They tend to get tied together during the public debate, and they should be handled separately. So, first disclaimer, my personal opinion is that reproductive cloning should be illegal. It's not right now. It's just illegal to use federal dollars to pursue it, but it's not illegal. The trouble is reproductive cloning is First off, there's no scientific reason to do it. And we could have some fun, for instance, saying having an entire linebacking core made up of Paul Puzlesny's, for instance. Or we might talk about leaving our money to ourselves by creating a clone of us and then willing all of our money to, to ourselves, in essence. But the fact of the matter is there's no scientific reason for it, and it's very dangerous. And so my personal opinion is this should be illegal. My personal opinion, on the other hand, is that we should be exploring therapeutic cloning as a potential tool to cure disease. Dangerous in that it, most people don't understand it. I'll show you a picture of Dolly in a moment. Most of you know Dolly the cloned sheep. She, mo what most people don't know is that she was the product of 238 attempts. So clonal embryos were made and then put into 238 surrogate ewes to serve as the host. If we were to clone a human being, all the data suggests it's going to be even equally as hard, if not harder. Can you imagine lining up hundreds of women to serve as surrogate wombs to get one clonal person? The 
There is no reason to justify that. Cloned babies tend to be bigger, so there's some risk there. And then, of course, there's risk with any pregnancy, and so these are things we need to consider. We've learned tremendous things from cloning, and in fact, I got into the business of, of cloning to try and clone an alcoholic monkey to ask a very important question, is, a cl is an alcoholic a, the clone of an alcoholic monkey destined to be an alcoholic? It was so hard, we couldn't pull it off. But along the way, we discovered this new way of making embryos, uh, which turns out to have some ethical advantages. In order to create one clone, we would have to get many women to serve as surrogate, uh, surrogate wombs, if you will surrogate mothers, and, and it's so inefficient, there's, there's, that's not without risk. So is there any benefit that would justify the need to do that? When we talk about experimenting on humans, it's always does the risk outweigh the benefit. And in this case, I see no benefit. That makes it dangerous. The other thing we don't know is that um, the... the, the the data just aren't good enough to talk about things like birth defects. We don't have enough examples. What, are, what is our risk of producing a birth defect that's not part of the cloning process, but the way the pregnancy was established? So I can't argue with the, the potential benefit, but I can argue with personal opinion now with the means of getting there. And so I'll make two observations. The first is you've already touched on one, nature versus nurture. I would advocate solving that problem with animals, cloning rather than experimenting on humans to see how somebody turned out. The second thing, though, is that um, think about what it would mean to somebody to find out that they were brought into the world to solve a question, as opposed to being brought into the world from a sense of love. That's a very difficult issue that we haven't discussed. So that's something I think we need to consider. But, but your point's well taken in terms of tremendous things could be accomplished if, as a society, we felt it was worth using people to answer those questions. And that's just a tough one. This is Dolly. Dolly, as I pointed out, was the first cloned sheep. We just need to talk about it because what Dolly proved was we could... This was a, a landmark discovery by Ian Wilmot and his team in Scotland because it proved something wrong that we all believed, that is... When, it, when your cells decide what they're going to be, they've decided for life. And what Dolly proved was that the, a, a cell from, from the breast of one sheep could be used to create a genetically identical twin, a delayed twin, of that sheep. By the way, most of you probably don't know why she's called Dolly. <laughs> Absolutely. So it turns out that Ian Wilmot, delightful guy, very dry sense of humor, cloned the sheep using a breast cell, and he was a big fan of Dolly Parton. <laughs> well, anyway, so Dolly set the stage, and I'll rapidly run through uh, a set of slides. I'll, I'll pause here for a second. That was followed by a friend of mine who at the time was at Advanced Cell Technology, Jose Sibeli, who cloned, was the first to clone cattle. This is important because these are genetically identical, but you can tell them apart looking at their legs. Just as all of you who know twins can tell them apart because we are the product of our genetics and our environment. So even girls raised in the exact same family might wear their hair differently, might have a, have a different personality style, 
at the extreme example might have fallen and, and have a scar, one have a scar and the other doesn't, that's because they're the product of their genetics and their environment. And so even though they're raised in theoretically the same environment, they might not turn out to be exactly the same. Uh, in terms of your earlier comment, I can recommend to you a video, it's really quite old and way ahead of its time, called The Boys from Brazil. And the idea was, they were way ahead of their time, the, whoever wrote that book, and I can't recall now, uh, but... Levin. Levin, correct. So the idea was that we would clone Hitler from his cells, but they understood that he had to be raised the exact same way as Hitler was. Single mother, domineering mother, uh, and so the whole movie is about that idea, trying to raise Hitlers. And so it, it raises all sorts of ethical issues when we start thinking about doing this with humans, which is why I think it should be illegal until we have a discussion that says we need it. Uh, because, frankly, it gets in the way of therapeutic cloning, um, that discussion. And we'll talk about that because I don't know how many times I've heard, well, if we let you have therapeutic cloning, the next thing you know we'll be cloning human beings. Well, that's not an argument, and it wouldn't be an argument if, if reproductive cloning were illegal. So we have cloned cattle, we have cloned pigs, we have cloned mice. The top mouse donated cells to make the two in the middle, and then one of them donated cells to make the three at the bottom. Clones of clones of clones are totally normal. And I only raise that because there are some concerns about accumulated mutations, well, it turns out nature's very good at repairing these kinds of things, and so we don't accumulate mutations in the cloning process. We can clone mice from cells in a tissue culture dish. That's what's on the bottom. So this is a marvelous example that you can take cells out of the freezer and then use those to create a clone. And in fact, what happens right now is that in the cattle industry, in the herd cattle industry, there is, uh, it's common to keep the best stock as frozen embryos and bring them out as you need them. So this is another example. Well, let's come back then and talk about stem cells. Why are they so important? Why are they such an issue of discussion? And it's because of their potential. So I'll just start by talking about embryonic stem cells briefly just to describe stem cells in general. A stem cell is a cell that hasn't decided what it wants to be. And so they have, we geek scientists have the tendency to create these complex names for relatively simple con concepts. Uh, I like to think of stem cells as my 14-year-old daughter. She doesn't know what she's going to be when she grows up. Stem cells are the same way. We call that pluripotency. They have the ability, they have the potency to become multiple different kinds of tissues. They are immortal. The cells that we use in the laboratory now which are uh, on the president's list of approved cell lines from 2001, they were created in the 1990s and have been growing continuously ever since. So these cells are immortal, which gives them tremendous potential. Uh, we're also doing some experiments with adult stem cells, and as I'll tell you, they have a limited lifespan. They'll divide for a while, then they senesce, they grow old and die. That's not true of embryonic stem cells. They can be maintained indefinitely in a normal state. They don't become mutated. They don't, uh, they don't accumulate damage. And in the case of embryonic stem cells, they are, so, they are not just pluripotent, they are totipotent. They can become any tissue in the body. And so that makes them particularly attractive as potential therapies. 
And then finally, they have tremendous potential for regenerative medicine. That is, treating diseases which now we just treat the symptoms of. Examples are diabetes and Parkinson's disease and Alzheimer's disease. We can't cure those diseases. We just treat the symptoms. And that's because they are caused by dying cells. And we haven't figured out how to keep them from dying. So one approach would be to replace them with new cells that are derived from the five tools in our stem cell toolbox. Embryonic stem cells are not species specific in that every species has them. Yes, they can become organs, but they can't replace human organs because they'd be rejected. If we try to transplant, for instance, a, a cow liver into a human, we would reject that. It turns out my friend Jose tried that experiment as a graduate student got himself into a lot of trouble. He put one of his cells into a bovine egg using a tool I'll show you in a second. And again, nature figured it out right away and just stopped growing. So they are incompatible. Well, if you're going to be asking tough questions, I'm going <laughs> to have to leave. I'm sorry. Uh, the cells are immortal, the cells themselves. But here's why it's difficult to say. The cell divides into two cells. Which one's the original cell? but they are genetically identical and you can say that the cell that I'm looking at today is identical. It is the cell following many cell divisions from way back in the 90s, but an excellent point. They're alive. Wow. You guys are killing me. They... <laughs> true, true. Bunch of wicked smart folks. I got to stop hanging out up here. So they're alive from the standpoint that they make their own energy and they can divide and become other tissues. So alive doesn't mean left to their own devices, they'll make another person. And I wouldn't, my uh, personal opinion, I wouldn't say they're embodied with a soul, but they do everything that any cell in our body does. And they reproduce themselves through division. So in that sense, they are alive. Oh, they get their energy. We have to provide them with nutrients, which we do in the tissue culture dish. We give them sugars. We give them uh, uh, sources of energy, minerals. First, law of mass action. They can't create mass out of space. So we provide them with the tools they use to build themselves. I thought, I thought I wasn't going to get to that one. Good. All right. So let's go. Let's start digging down into what each of these tools mean. What are their advantages and disadvantages? So let me just remind you very briefly what they are. Adult stem cells are cells that are found in our body that are used to replenish damage. You can do a partial hepatectomy. And I just saw a headline today's paper. One person gave part of their liver to a baby. The point is you can remove two-thirds of your liver and within a matter of weeks it'll replace itself because it houses these adult stem cells that are meant to repair the liver. And so they'll very quickly rebuild the liver, exact same shape, same function, same everything. Almost all of our tissues have adult stem cells. What I'm going to share with you, is, that, however, is that the heart and the brain don't have very many, whereas the liver has a ton. The trouble is the ones in the liver only want to be liver. They won't become something else. We can't make them become something else. 
So they, th that's a limitation we'll talk about. But you're all familiar with stem cells for 40 years. Bone marrow transplants are transplanting stem cells. Their job is to make red blood cells, white blood cells, and then bone forming cells and cartilage forming cells. They're pluripotent. They can become multiple kinds of cells, but really only four or five kinds. Bone, cartilage, uh, cartilage making and breaking down cells, uh, red blood cells and white blood cells. So those are adult stem cells, and we have those available to us, and they are, may be a very valuable tool for treating disease. Uh, a friend of mine at Wake Forest University, Tony Atala, was in the news about three or four months ago because he has been working very hard on cells that are found in amniotic fluid, and a, a tremendous potential there. Apparently, the fetus sheds cells during its development, and those can be harvested. And we had a conversation about the fact that some people, uh, it's, a, it's a new industry to bank your baby's blood cells in the eventuality that we'll figure out how to use them to cure disease later. And as I pointed out when I was talking at uh, the Penn State Forum last autumn, if I'd had that opportunity with my 11 and now 14-year-olds, uh, we would have banked their blood, but it wasn't, the technology wasn't available then. So we'll talk about that. Here's the stickiest issue. We all know what the problem with embryonic stem cells is. You must destroy an embryo in the test tube in order to make those cells. I can't sugarcoat it. Personal opinion, for me, that's not destroying life, and I'll share with you why I believe that. I don't know that that's the right answer. I know for a fact it's not going to be the right answer for everybody, but I'll share my thoughts on that. The trouble is, as a society, we have not had this following discussion. Show of hands, how many of you are in favor of helping infertile couples with in vitro fertilization? We destroy tons of embryos every year in that process. So let me just describe how it works. Mom and dad can't have a baby. They go to their endocrinologist, they figure out why that is, and generally the IVF doc then gives mom a hormonal cocktail and she super ovulates. She doesn't make one egg or two eggs. She makes a clutch of eggs, 12, 15. Those are all harvested. Then in the test tube, dad makes a donation. I know it's not very romantic, but dad makes a donation. And then we assist the process by picking up a sperm and actually putting it into an egg. They all are fertilized. So that, that bypasses all the problems of dad doesn't make enough sperm, uh, the sperm are, are not uh, competent to penetrate the egg. All of those kinds of issues we bypass. So now we have 12 to 15 embryos in the test tube. If we put those back into mom, she wouldn't have one or two babies. She'd have a litter of babies. Well, that's obviously not optimal. So what we do is that the IVF doc will implant two to four embryos. And about 50% of the time, there's a viable pregnancy. Mom and dad have a beautiful baby and life is good. If they don't get pregnant, the IVF doc goes to the liquid nitrogen freezer, takes out the, some of the leftover embryos and puts those into mom. And we keep trying until mom gets pregnant. But what happens if mom gets pregnant that first time and they don't want to have any more babies? Well, it's terrific. They have their family, they are happy. But wait, we have those extra embryos sitting in the freezer. What happens to those embryos? 
This is the interactive part. <laughs> so the, that's one of the answers. They are destroyed or they're put up for adoption. And the pre president's uh, refers to this as snowflake babies, and I think the number's up to around 150 to 200 snowflake babies. But the reality is that 10,000 embryos a year are destroyed as excess IVF material. Now, let me point out, we're not reaching into the womb and terminating a pregnancy. And so now here's my personal opinion. Uh, as I've mentioned on numerous occasions, I'm a Methodist, and uh, we're kind of a wishy-washy bunch. But the fact of the matter, for me, if the embryo isn't put into the womb, it doesn't become a baby. It cannot become a baby. It cannot develop in the test tube. So we're not reaching into the womb and terminating a pregnancy. We're choosing not to initiate a pregnancy. So for me, personal opinion, that doesn't constitute life. However... I understand that there are individuals, and I respect that opinion, there are individuals that believe life begins at fertilization, even if it's in the test tube. And we need to have that conversation. So for them, we, when we make stem cells, we are destroying life. The problem, the disconnect, is that we're destroying embryos by the thousands every year. That doesn't make it right, but we are. And so... I'll get off my soapbox now and just point out those are the facts. How you deal with them is up to your personal belief system. Well, what I'd like to do uh, quickly is then get into these last two, which are new ways of making cells, embryonic stem cells, and we'll provide you some information on what the potential is. So uh, I'll just point out we've talked about adult stem cells their disadvantages is that for some organs, they're not very common. In the case of brain, for instance, we know there are cells here in the memory center. This is a, a diagram of a rat brain, but uh, the same applies to human brain. There are cells in the hippocampus and in the, what's called the subventricular zone, the F SVZ, that are there to replenish damage. But notice that most of the brain doesn't have that option. So for instance, if you suffer a stroke or brain damage, you have limited opportunity to repair that damage. And so that's a problem with neural adult stem cells. Now, when I'm frequently asked the question, well, why don't we just use adult stem cells and figure out if we can use them? And my answer is they're one of the tools in the toolbox. We need to understand them. But they, in the case of brain, which is what I'm interested in, are very rare. And they cannot cure all of the defects. And so if we can figure out how to make a mesenchymal stem cell, this is a bone marrow stem cell, become a neuron, maybe we can use those. But should we put all of the other tools in the toolbox aside until we figure out whether or not adult stem cells will work. That is an approach. The trouble with it is that we then are saying 10 years from now, if we find out adult stem cells can't cure Parkinson's disease, then I'm stuck and we've got to start over from scratch. And in the meantime, we've had 10 years of continuing suffering and continuing death that we may someday get an answer to. So that's a problem with adult stem cells. Uh, May, inadequate numbers in some tissues, for instance, the heart doesn't do a very good job of repairing itself following a heart attack, for instance. Uh, to get them 
is invasive, if I want adult neuronal stem cells, I have to drill a hole in your head and reach in there and take out some tissue to get those cells. So obviously that's not optimal either. It's very invasive. However, we have 40 years of using adult stem cells, bone marrow transplants. And when, when you've got the right application, it works brilliantly. We don't need embryonic stem cells to cure bone marrow diseases. They may help us be a little more efficient or something, but we don't have to have them. So they have a huge advantage. We don't destroy embryos, and we have a lot of experience with them. But they're not, I don't think, going to solve every problem. Well, from an evolutionary standpoint, or the way God designed it, depending on your bent, um, it turns out that the liver is our garbage dump. It handles all the toxins and it's constantly turning over. So it makes sense that it would have a regenerative capacity. We turn over our red blood cells and our white blood cells every 21 days. So we need some way to replace them. We're in essence born with almost all the brain cells we're ever going to get. And so that's, for whatever reason, that organ hasn't evolved to contain a huge regenerative capacity. Now, I just made all of that up. It sounds right to me, but nobody knows the right answer. So the question was, could embryonic stem cells go through the blood-brain barrier to repair disease? And the answer is no, and nor would we want them to. Because embryonic stem cells are totipotent, you wouldn't want them to be in the brain and decide to make a foot. <laughs> so what we're trying to do is figure out how to make them become neurons in the dish and then we transplant them into the brain using... That would take surgery. There would be no way around it. What they become is determined by the organ, but that's totally... I said we don't have embryonic stem cells in our body, so that's not a normal environment for them. If we take embryonic stem cells and put them in the brain, they frequently don't do anything. They just sit there, if you do these experiments in mice, for instance. So... It's, they find themselves in an environment they're not used to being in. They don't want to be in an adult environment. They're embryonic stem cells. And so we haven't figured that out yet. What we're hoping is if we can make them become neurons in the dish, when we put them in the brain, they'll say, oh, I'm a neuron, I'm going to stay a neuron, and they won't do something else. But tumors are a big problem, and I'll show you an example of why that's a problem in a minute. They have tremendous promise but we haven't proven anything. With animal models, we have repaired, we have alleviated some uh, spinal cord injuries. We have been able to put stem cells into a Parkinsonian model in rats, but it hasn't cured Parkinson's disease. So I don't want to, I'm not one of these scientists that say we could have cured Christopher Reeve. It would not have happened. So they hold tremendous potential, but we haven't proven that yet. And it's a very important point. Um, we have to, I think we should go forward in a measured fashion. We should be studying embryonic stem cells, uh, but I'm not one of those scientists that say falsely that I'm going to cure all disease if you let me do whatever I want with stem cells. We've got to be careful about that, but it's a good, good question. As you'll see in a moment, there is no threat of rejection if you do it with somatic cell nuclear transfer cloning, and I'll show you how we do that in a second.
that the question relates to the fact that if you go into an early embryo or into a fetus, they have a set of cells that are someplace between the embryonic stem cell and the adult stem cell, and they're called germ cells. I Personally, I haven't been involved in that kind of research because it requires destroying a fetus, not destroying an embryo in the test tube, but terminating a, a pregnancy in animals at least. And so that, that is another source of cells, but I think has even more ethical baggage than the embryonic stem cell. But we can talk about that offline. We have already talked about how IVF technologies work. And it, uh, an issue that we haven't talked about is self versus non-self. So the in vitro fertilization technology uses a sperm and an egg and creates a unique genetic state. So that if you did that in the test tube and you transplanted it into any of us here, there's a really good chance we would reject it because they aren't our cells. They, were, they are something unique in the world, and we can talk about the philosophical implications of a unique genetic entity. Is that a life? But the fact of the matter is the disadvantage with IVF technologies is that you would have to very carefully match the transplant type of those cells to see that it wasn't rejected. But it would not be your cells. It would be cells of a different type or a different genetic background. This is what we're talking about in the test tube. This is the embryo we're talking about. It's 250 to 500 cells. The outer part is destined to become the placenta if it's put into the womb. Let me keep that very clear. We're not reaching in the womb and terminating a pregnancy. In the test tube, we are deciding not to start the pregnancy, but this is the structure. So this becomes the placenta, the area... In, in blue is called the inner cell mass, and that would be des that is destined to become the fetus if implanted in the womb. For a sense of scale, this is a digital reconstruction. Uh, that's a quarter at a suitable magnification. This is the blastocyst. So that's what we're that's what we're talking about. This is a digital reconstruction. You can't take those pictures side by side, but. This is the relative scale. You can just barely see a blastocyst, this embryo, in the test tube or in the dish. It doesn't diminish its value, but I just want a sense of scale here. We'll skip over this quickly, but just point out that there are these stem cells that are found in the amniotic fluid. They have ethic, several advantages, both ethical and, and scientific. Ethically, there's no destruction of embryo. This is the placenta that's destined to be thrown away, so we just harvest the cells from that or from uh, uh, amniocentesis. The second advantage, scientific, is that these are the baby's cells. There is no rejection problem here because they're their own cells. Now, if we can just figure out how to make those cells do what we want them to do, then we have the, uh, have the perfect potential therapy because no embryos are destroyed and they are uh, the cells of that patient. Now, the disadvantage, none of us have any of those cells in the freezer. So we may have the, uh, a cure for our next generation, but for us right now, this is going to have limited utility. So could we use those cells to cure Parkinson's disease? And the answer is no. They're not neurons. So we'd have, we still have a ton of work to do. We've got to figure out how to make them become those neurons 
that are dying in Parkinson's and then transplant them in. If we can figure that out, the good news is they won't be rejected. They are the baby's cells, but we just have to figure out how they work. They are totipotent as far as we can tell right now. But uh, again, these are such new cells, we've still got a lot of work to do on them. Are they, they appear to be embryonic stem cells that have just been shed. So they're not like a skin cell or something. They, and, and they are only the minority of the cells that you find there, but you can sort them out. Essentially, because they're immortal, they'll continue to grow when everything else dies. They're kind of an in-between thing. I think they're going to have tremendous power. We just don't know yet. But they're probably going to be totipotent. Now, the thing about Dolly was that, that we took, I don't know what you call her, Dolly's mom, Dolly's progenitor, whatever the donor of the breast tissue was or is called, and we cloned those cells. That's called somatic cell nuclear transfer cloning. And I'll show you a video of how that works. These are tremendously attractive cells for two reasons. One is they're your cells. So let me, let me, let's talk about that for a second. We have the ability right now to take one of your skin cells in a punch biopsy and turn them into your embryonic stem cells. These are your cells. The difficulty is that in the test tube we destroy an embryo. But it's not just any embryo, it's, these are your cells. So we have a philosophical discussion we should be having about what right do I have over my cells? And so how does that work? How can that possibly work? These are your own cells, the perfect transplant material. Well, this is how it works. You take an egg. These are experiments we did a while back with monkey cells. So this is a monkey egg. It has been bathed in a solution that highlights nucleic acid, DNA. And so we use an ultraviolet light to highlight the nucleus, and then we suck it out of the egg. So there's a holding pipette right here that holds the egg in place. We roll it around. There's the nucleus. The needle, which is a micron in diameter, is used to remove the genetic information. What do we got now? Well, we got an egg that's got no instructions. It's, an, it's, it's called an enucleated egg. It has no genetic information. Uh, for the biologists in the crowd, this structure down here that you're wondering about is the second polar body. Remember, eggs only have one copy of our chromosomes. That's because this one is in the process of throwing one of its sets away so that it can become haploid. But the point here is that we've removed the genetic information. Now we want to give it something to work on. So we go into the uh, punch biopsy. We take a skin cell, pick it up in the pipette, and shove it back into the egg. Now, remember, eggs are the biggest cells that we know of in nature. The uh, chicken egg is, is a single cell, the one that you get out of your fridge. Same way with mammals. So we can shove an entire skin cell into an egg. And then some magic happens, and I can't tell you why, but the ooplasm, the goodies in here, Take that cell, that skin cell, and say, you're not a skin cell, you're now an embryo cell. And it reprograms its nucleus, and it turns it into an embryonic cell. In order for that to happen, it dissolves the cell, it takes it apart, it gets at its chromosomes, and reprograms them. We don't know how that works.
And it has been done. We haven't done it, but it has been done. What hasn't worked is that if you put it in the womb, it makes a pregnancy. Now, the Raelians, I love this story. There are, there's a sect of individuals, uh, I'm going to try and be dispassionate about this, in Canada that believe we humans were left here by aliens on Earth. And the aliens are coming back someday. And we want to be here when they get here, so we're just going to clone ourselves over and over again. So the Raelians have made two, two press conferences so far saying that they've managed to clone a human being. Both cases, they turned out to be false. And it was a, um, what's the word? A hoax. Thank you. I'm a scientist. I'm not a linguist. So that hasn't been reported yet. So this process works. Making stem cells out of it hasn't been proven yet. And the trouble is that what she's referring to is that a scientist in Korea had a tremendous uh, misconduct issue, a hoax, claiming to have cloned a bunch of cells, uh, a bunch of different lines. It may turn out that some of that did work. We just can't figure it out because so much of it was false. Right. So the skin cell is carrying the new nucleus. So we're going to use its nucleus. So the first slide showed us removing this nucleus, and then we replaced it with the skin cell nucleus. Well, so what's possible? Well, we reconstruct an embryo. If it were put into the uterus, it might make a delayed twin of you. But again, we've talked about how inefficient it is, potentially dangerous to surrogate moms. On the other hand, if we don't put it in the womb, we could create a long-term cell culture from it that would be your cells and your cells with the ability to become any tissue in your body. That's the potential. Let me make that clear. It's a potential, and it hasn't yet been reported for humans. So the point is that this could lead to the perfect transplant material, your own cells used to cure your disease. It probably couldn't be anything better, except you destroy an embryo in the process of making the cells. In the test tube, you have to take the embryo apart. So that's an issue that we as a society need to have a conversation about. Well, I'm running out of time, so let me just show you a picture that uh, uh, back in 2001, Kathy Grant, Jose Sabelli, and I were trying to clone the drunk monkey. It never worked, but we had all of these extra eggs from superovulating female monkeys, and we, uh, at at Jose's suggestion, we tried parthenogenesis. So parthenogenesis is very common in lower organisms, bees and uh, snakes, that in, when times where the environment is rich, the, uh, the woman just turns on her eggs. She, she doesn't need any sperm. Um, the quotation that was in the, um, uh, was in the Penn Stater two weeks ago, in the article about our work, as I'm fond of pointing out, was the female says, we don't need no stinking men. <laughs> and so she just starts pumping out activated eggs. And so the uh, honeybee makes drones through a process called parthenogenesis. Now, if the environment becomes challenging, then they do, the species needs men to give genetic diversity so that we can adapt to a changing environment. Well, anyway... It's very common in lower organisms. In mammals, it doesn't work because a parthenogenetic embryo won't form a placenta. 
it needs some imprinting that comes from the sperm. So what we did was took eggs, activated them into thinking they had been fertilized. They go through all the process and make that blastocyst that I showed you earlier, and then we can make stem cells or we're able to make stem cells from them. The ethical advantage is it's a non-viable embryo. It won't make a baby even if put back in the womb. So we've spent a lot of time trying to figure out, are these cells normal? Do they behave like other embryonic stem cells, which they do? Uh, and so the, the upshot of all of this is that they uh, are activated eggs without using sperm. They are, will not produce a successful pregnancy. So we make cells from a non-fertilized, non-viable embryo that is an extension of self. That is, that's genetically ide almost identical to the female. Now, we haven't figured out how to do this with sperm, so guys, we're out of luck so far. But it does have some advantages, and uh, unfortunately, it falls under the president's prohibition that we're not allowed to use federal dollars to study even these non-viable parthenotes. So that's something that hopefully we're going to be addressing in this next Congress. So they will make all of these cells, and I'm going to not say anything except that these are the cells that die in Parkinson's disease. And something I've been studying for 15 years, these cells make an enzyme called tyrosine hydroxylase, which is important for potentially curing Parkinson's disease. So I'll just close. I'll come back to the girls in a second. I'll just close by pointing out what's possible. This is Buttercup. Buttercup is alive and well and living in Oregon with my colleague Kathy Grant, well, in her laboratory, uh, Buttercup donated her ovaries to do the parthenogenesis. Well, donate's a little strong. She was the source. Here's the cool part. Buttercup is alive and well. Buttercup's stem cells in the test tube spontaneously become beating heart cells. So this is a real-time microscopic image of a patch of cells that have started to beat together. These are the ciliated epithelial cells that die in chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, COPD. We could, if she had those diseases, like a heart attack, for instance, we could cure that disease with her cells. That's the good news. The bad news is I don't know why the cells did that. They literally, just on their own, started to become beating heart cells or epithelial cells. So our task is to figure out how to make them do what we want. And so... Uh, I thank you for your attention. This is why I do what I do. My girls, Caroline and Erin, um, uh, and in fact, I was telling other folks, I, two weeks ago I had a tremendous opportunity to be a guest teacher at Hershey High School. Uh, my oldest is a freshman, so I had seven sections of ninth grade biology. It wore me out. If there are teachers out there in the audience, I'm not worthy. I don't know that I could do that. But it was really fabulous to share with them the potential excitement for what could happen as they grow older. And that's why we do what we do. Thank you very much.